My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Today, our guest is calling from the Correctional Training Facility in Soledad, California. I was incarcerated with him and can tell you that as long as I have known him, he has been after his transformation and doing insight work into how he got himself into a position where he could end up in prison for life. He has a unique and fascinating story. And what inspires me most about Ruben is he lives his life counterculture to prison norms and has taken a bold stand against prison politics. A rare and dangerous feat for a Mexican from Southern California. Our guest today is Ruben Garola. Ruben was born in Los Angeles, California in 1988, which makes him our second youngest incarcerated guest. He was sentenced to 15 years to life at the age of 23 and has been incarcerated for seven years and 10 months. Today, Ruben is 31 years old. Ruben's initial parole board hearing was scheduled for February 2024, but because of Proposition 57, he will now go for the parole board in 2020. Ruben has a strong support system filled with family and friends waiting for him to come home and be physically free in their lives again today. Ruben, thank you for caring and for being willing to share your story with us and our listeners. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Should I should I clarify a few things that are on there? Uh, sure. Go. Yeah, go into a should be board in February of 2024. I used to have February of 2027. I should be going even earlier that actually now that I recently got some more uh, educational credits and milestone credits. So time's still knocking away, uh, ticking away at it. And then I was born in Bakersfield, California, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. You're born. I, I could redo the, I could redo the, the intro on, uh, afterwards and record it. All right. Yeah. So you were born in Bakersfield. I was born in Bakersfield. Oh, well, there you go. Then we know exactly where we're from. Then. That's, Kern it's, County it's, Medical uh, Center. The, I was born in Memorial Hospital. So, okay. Yeah, Memorial What's Hospital. The, so that, go ahead. No, no, Memorial Hospital uh, a long time ago, back when, you know, Bakersfield was still kind of a small town. Now it's getting gotten a lot bigger right here. Yeah, for sure. What's the maximum amount of time that you could knock knock off of your sentence through? And how do you do that? I've estimated it. I can probably realistically knock off about a total of the 15 years of life, knock out about a little around four to five years. Now, for Prop 57, they took off two years right in 2007. So that had knocked me down from 15 years of life, 13 years to I would go to my parole board hearing on my 13th year, around my 13th year. However, I've also completed the associate's degree while I'm in here. I'm I'm just around the corner of finishing my bachelor's degree. And most of the credits that you get for, say, taking college courses, high school diploma, getting an associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's, any of those further knock down your time off your sentence. Of course, taking rehabilitation groups, which is your self-help groups in here, slowly take it off as well. You're only a maximum of taking off four weeks for that, whereas you're a max of um, 12 weeks with taking college courses. Are you saying that the prison system is incentivized there? Is it incentivized? I would say that for those who really want to 
change, who really want to transform their lives, who really desire to put first what they value. People say here that they value their family, their friends, their loved ones. You can now have a chance of showing that, of proving that, of doing that by taking the necessary steps in order to get out earlier. That would include taking your self-help groups, so taking your college classes. That is an incentive to be like, hey, you continue to do well. There is a very strong possibility that your well behavior is going to be rewarded and you'll be able to be back with your loved ones earlier than later. All right. All right. Sounds like you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So currently, yes, uh, I, I have been taking a bold stance to not just try, but actually finish my bachelor's degree by somewhere around March of 2020. I've been doing it for about two and a half, going on almost on three years now and should be in the that finished right around the corner. Um, I'm looking forward to it. All right. I look forward to hearing hearing uh, how soon you get to board. I mean, being after being in on for already uh, nearly eight years, that means you could probably yeah. get there within uh, three years. Yes. Yes. It, it does look like with the educational credits, again, estimating from the educational credits that I'm getting for my bachelor's, for the college classes I'm taking, plus the self-help groups, I will be going in roughly three years. Yes, sometime at the end of 2022, I've estimated. All right. Well, Ruben, uh, the podcast is a podcast largely listened to. Our listeners are largely uh, loved ones of the incarcerated who have brothers and, and sisters and and husbands and, and boyfriends and, and sons who are incarcerated, uh, daughters who are incarcerated who want to know what, you know, what it's like for, for you in there. How did you end up in there? Uh, what does it take to get out? What does it take to take a stand for your freedom, for your future, for your family? What does it take to, to go before the parole board? And, and I appreciate you being willing to share your story. Their ultimate hope is for their loved ones to change their lives, come home, never to go back again. It sounds like you're on that path. So, Appreciate you coming on the show today. Would you be willing to take us back and, and tell us how, how life started for you? You know, you mentioned Bakersfield, California. You know, what was your childhood and upbringing like before headed down the path where, you know, you could receive a life sentence in prison? You know, what are, what are some of those positive stories you remember growing up before you ever headed down that path? I'm definitely positive. So, yeah, as I said before, I was born in Bakersfield, California. Both my parents immigrated about 10 years before I was born from Mexico over to the United States. I have two older brothers. My mom and dad are still married to this day. And that's definitely one positive thing that I've always seen uh, since I've been a kid. We were definitely a close-knit family. We we definitely helped each other out. We provided for each other. We talked with one another. We We had some really good times. So right around early 90s, I remember my mom and dad, they told me later on that, you know, I started developing asthma, uh, started developing a lot of sicknesses. That really kind of drew me close to my mom. My dad was always working. He's been a bartender for most of my life at a, a little restaurant there in Bakersfield called Mexicali. And my mom, during those younger years of mine, she kind of ran like a daycare center from our house. So early on, there was kids there, not just my older brothers, who one is nine years older than me, the other one seven years older than me. So I, I got to 
I guess, interact with a lot of other kids there in the daycare center. Growing up, I, I remember my dad taking us kids to to the lake. There's a Buena Vista Lake not too far from there. And, uh, you know, we didn't grow up with money or anything. We were pretty poor. I remember, you know, having a mom having to put things on layaway just so I can get some Legos that I, I really wanted. That was one of the things that I definitely remember as well. My mom and dad always sacrificing for her three for their three kids. That was definitely one thing that I take away from that was positive from my childhood that my parents definitely showed us that if you value something, you put that first. If you say, oh, you're kids like they did and they have all their lives, they've put us first all the time. They put me first. They, of course, sacrificed their, their finances, sacrificed sometimes their own uh, their own happiness to, just to see us overjoyed when we can open up a, a present, see Legos, some, some Legos right there, or a video game. I, I remember being young and uh, enjoying a lot of Christmases throughout Christmas time right now and doing a lot of Christmases with my around my grandma and grandpa's house. That was they all lived in Bakersfield and that was kind of one of the things that we always did during the holidays. My cousins, aunts, uncles, all of us would always come together as a family at my grandma and grandpa's house for the holidays. That was truly, truly memorable. It sounded like you had a close family. Yes, yes. Uh definitely close family. Still to this day, I would say we are very close. We communicate often. I talk to them often, and it's one of those things that I've just been really blessed with. So what would you say your your overall experience was of life then? My overall experience of life was, I would say that the family came first. Like, we, we definitely always try to put family first. We always had that that sense of like we are together we're, we're we protect one another and that we're, we're just always there to help one another and i would say it was for the most part being a child it was definitely happiness some joyous times though we weren't rich we definitely have a lot of good memories of uh you know cooking empanadas with you know with grandma like her you know her giving me food before you know the before we actually ate for christmas or thanksgiving or grandpa having uh, the pit out in the back of his house where, you know, he <laughs> cooked everything from chicharrones yeah. to every type of food. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, it, it was one of those joyous things where, like, we always came together regardless of what was happening, like, during the holidays, we came together. And even during, not during the times during the holidays, we still made sure, you know, my, you know, my brothers were going to school, that I was going to school. That was really instilled in us by our mom and dad. They didn't have a chance to education. I think that's obviously one of the things that they valued to instill in their children. So I remember being a kid and it was always on time, like to school, waking us up and uh, early just so we could make it on time to school, driving us to school, prepping us for school, you know, giving us food for school. It was definitely... I got a sense of feeling that, like, they always looked after me. They always, like, allowed me to stay at home, watch TV, and play video games. Absolutely, obviously, but they always encouraged things like that. They were very encouraging. So it sounds like your parents were very disciplined, very loving. They had bright goals for you. Yes, they, they, def- they definitely did. I know my my dad definitely has said it many times to me that, he grew up 
not having a mother or a father. You know, he had no father. He had a mother, but she wasn't really ever there for him. And, you know, he remembers being poor, growing up in Durango and Little Pueblo and not really having much to eat, much to, you know, the, uh, and water to drink or anything. He was kind of scrounging for himself. So I truly believe he had that drive, that vision to kind of uh, have something better for his kids. And so they they were really strict on uh, making sure we go to school and make sure we study and make sure we had our homework always done. And it was one of those things where it was always instilled in us that, like, we're brothers, we're family, like, help each other out. Like, it was definitely some good times when I was younger. So, Ruben, fill in the blank right here. Before I began down the wrong path, life for me was? Life for me was lonely. So, so I have some really good times with my family, of course, in the past. When I was younger, I always had this sense of feeling that, I, I, of course, I was loved. However, at the same time, I felt lonely because of the fact that a lot of my cousins, a lot, all my brothers, they were so much older than me that I was kind of not allowed to hang out with them much, you know, when they went with their friends or when they were out. It was more of, I'm younger, you know, a nine-year difference from each other. It was kind of like, I was looked at as like the kid, like, don't come, like, don't come with us. You're just a kid. I remember, you know, a lot of times being in my home, playing video games by myself, watching TV by myself, on the computer by myself. And it was due to the fact that eventually my, my mom, she no longer had the daycare and she started working at Sears. And my dad was still bartending in Cali. And a lot of the times they were working. And I would come home and of course my, my brothers sometimes would be there, sometimes they'd be with their friends. And I, I got this feeling where uh, I didn't have anyone my age or someone nearby to uh, talk to often. So I felt really, uh, even though that we were so close, I still felt alone because it just seemed like there was not a lot of people there that I could talk to. I did have cousins on my dad's side that I hung out with quite often that we always went to their house. However, even with them, I was kind of always looked at as he's the kid that, you know, plays video games, kind of more of a nerd, not really the, the one that is social or like that fits in with that mold that they, that they had at the time. They were, you know, 11, 12 at that time. And they were, some of them had already, you know, started smoking and stuff or uh, trying experimenting with drinking and drugs. And I, I didn't really want to do any of that at that age. And it was one of those things where I felt kind of ostracized. Uh, felt like it, it, I was not included a lot of times. Being the youngest, I would say that that can happen often. It could be like, oh, well, you're too young. Stay home. How old were you when you when you started feeling that way? I started feeling that way before that. Before, you know, 12 years old. So I would say right around 9 or 10 I started feeling that way, and I mentioned earlier, I realized uh, around 1990, about two years old, um, my family realized that I had asthma. So I would get really sick during the winters. A lot of times, my asthma would flare up. I'd have pneumonia, bronchitis. And 
my mom and dad, you know, being loving as they are, they wanted to make sure that I wouldn't have asthma attacks or nothing, no flare ups. <clears throat> and a lot of the times that meant, you know, don't don't go outside, uh, don't go running around too much, don't play basketball so much, you could have an asthma attack or things like that. And it's like there was a lot of fear there. <laughs> there was a lot of fear, yes. There my my mom definitely had a lot of fear about my sickness. My dad was, was working really hard to make sure to pay for uh, any of the medical expenses that I needed during that time. My mom was really fearful. There was a lot of times I remember her waking me up in the middle of the night and uh, taking me to the hospital, to the emergency room, just because, you know, I, I was re- I was wheezing really bad and uh, she, she was just really frightened. And I feel that around that time, around nine or 10, there's a lot of, you know, my, my classmates, schoolmates, cousins, everybody, they're, they're running around, they're getting to play basketball, you know, they're getting to ride around their bike, skateboard and stuff. I'm not, feel like I'm not getting to do that so much. I'm feeling as if though, like I'm excluded from that. I, I got that feeling of loneliness because by then, my brothers are 19 and 17. My brother, my oldest brother, he's going out to Cal State Bakersfield already, so he's hardly ever home. He's with his friends. My brother's 17, and of course, he, at 17, you don't want to hang out with a 10-year-old. So right. that sense of belonging with my brothers and my family started coming unglued. And I didn't have, I felt like I didn't have many friends. I wasn't really allowed to bring friends over to the house much or go over to their house either. And I started feeling alone because, I mean, I'm, I'm the only one in the house. I'm playing video games, you know, obviously by myself. I can't go out really much and play. Of course, you, you have people calling you names, you know, nerd, square, whatever, uh, as a kid. And, and it, it makes you feel even worse about yourself. And it made me feel worse about myself. I started feeling that pain of... Uh, just not being included any longer. Uh, I just kind of wanted uh, some friends, and I didn't have many people to talk to. It sounds like you've done significant insight work looking back and to understand what was going on with you at the time, Ruben. And the thing is, is what I'm curious about is, how were you understanding it at that time? So at that time, I definitely thought about it that, you know, I, I wasn't really loved that no one liked me. I, I thought that uh, I was different, that, you know, I, a lot of my friends are getting to play basketball and I'm not. And it's because, you know, my, my mom's like, oh, like, I'm going to tell the the teacher, you know, like, don't want to play too much. He's, you know, he's sick. And so it, a lot of times it was like, oh, like, oh, Ruben, you know, you could sit this one out or like, you know, hey, uh, it, there was a lot of things that I, I started feeling that I'm like, okay, I'm, I don't feel exactly the same as, as my peers. I feel as if though uh, there's this exclusion that I started sensing in my mind that that like maybe maybe I'm just different. Like maybe I, I not so much that it's a bad thing, but that at the same time like I'm not the bent to be around like these people that are, are doing these these fun things outside. So I really right. secluded myself. I became kind of a lot more introverted. I, I started watching instead, you know, TV and, and playing video games more. And we had a computer at the house. My brother's going to uh, college already. So 
by like eight, you know, I have a computer and eight, nine years old and I'm, I'm starting to just kind of just be on the internet all the time, finding like escape through there, finding my escape through, um, through games, through TV, through, through internet. That's how I related to it because since I felt like I didn't have anybody outside like that I could talk to, I just felt like, okay, like I'm going to immerse myself in kind of a virtual world, something that's not real, something that just I can pass the time with. Right. And I don't know if you, if you thought about it, but just listening to you and, and thinking about, you know, how certain patterns of behavior back then contribute towards us committing crime later on in the future. And I'm just hearing, hearing you share, like when I felt excluded, I secluded. When, yeah. When I felt lonely, I introverted. Yeah. Go ahead. It's definitely, yeah, it, it's, I, I hear it now. I didn't see it then, of course. I just saw it as like, okay, I'm, I enjoy video games and this is what I'm going to do. I enjoy right. being on the computer all day. This is what I'm going to do. Like, it, it's slowly around that time, nine, ten years old, that I continue to do that. It's not until 12 that I'm in junior high. And I used to go to my aunt and uncle's house a lot from my dad's side of the family. And they have a lot of kids. And one of my cousins, he's exactly the same age as me. And I started hanging out with him a lot. Uh, around 12 years old because it's really the only person that I have as, I guess, a friend because I don't have any classmates that are friends. My brother's not really hanging out with them much anymore. And I kind of started hanging out with him a lot more in between 10 to 12 years old. Hey, Ruben, yeah, you're, touching so. on some, uh, you're touching on some things with depth, man. I really appreciate it. I mean, that's, I don't know about you for you, but it's, sometimes it's tough for me to go back and think about all the details of the past. And yeah. appreciate you willing to go there for my uh, nearly 21 years of incarceration. I spent a lot of time not thinking about the past, not going back. And, yeah. you know, I realized that to get out of prison to be, before going to board and before going to psychological evaluation, and that's one of the things they want you just to do is to get that insight work to go back. And I was curious, have you heard of the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T? No, I haven't actually. In a lot of small groups or therapeutic work, they have that acronym HALT, and it's an acronym for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. Yeah. And they talk yeah. about that. That's a, a lot of times when people revert back to old behavior, negative behavior, you know, even out here for somebody like myself who's on parole, going back to drinking or drugs, they'll, they'll say that those will be your, your triggers. Notice, notice how you'll act when you're hungry or angry or feeling lonely or tired. So I just thought of that because when you were talking about loneliness, you know, and any thoughts? No, definitely with uh, with loneliness because uh, I did. I've felt like I've always suffered from uh, this acute loneliness. It it became more acute later on in my life, right around high school. However, like the beginnings of it, of course, uh, were like I said, right around nine, ten years old not really getting to hang out with my brothers anymore and don't really have any friends. Kind of just stood there in my house most of the day. The only time I really had an escape to talk to other people, kids like my age, was my parents. They often went to my dad's sister, my aunt. When we went to their house. They lived there in Bakersfield as well. Probably about a five, seven-minute drive from our house. And often we would go there. Uh, I would go there on the weekends. Sometimes my parents would even drop me off, you know, they, they were going to work 
and at least it was a place where I had a few older cousins that lived there, so it was kind of like there was a bunch of us kids there, and at least we're looking looking after one another. That was really good, really positive. I, I definitely enjoy that for many years, for a few years, actually. It was fun. You know, of course, you play and go seek. You, you're going to the park. They had a park not far from their house. So we were always playing the swings, playing the basketball court. We were always, you know, running around. And we were running around at that age, you know, 9, 10, 11, still as kids, still, still young, still, you know, not really wanting to experiment or trying to think different. We just wanted to, and wanted to enjoy life and just being a kid. And I went there for several years and right around 12, it started changing. You know, we're in eighth grade. Uh, my cousin, he's a few months, several months older than me. So 12, he's about to be 13, you know, eighth grade is starting and we go to different middle schools and so he obviously wants to hang out with some of his friends when i go over and some of his friends are now introducing him to smoking cigarettes drinking and around that age it was again i started feeling a little more ostracized again around in that area because he wanted to hang out with his friends and it was like, okay, go ahead and tag along if you want, but you don't have to. And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. And sometimes I, I did it because I would tag along and, you know, they would go to the park or they'd go to someone's house and they would drink a little, you know, a few, few beers or something that their, their, their parents had in the house and smoke a few of their parents' cigarettes or something. And, and I didn't want to do that. Right. I, I wanted to play video games or like go back to the park and play basketball or something like just running around. It was around that age that at 12 where I was like, okay, um, I want to fit in. Like I'm, I'm hanging, this is my cousin. Like these are my cousins, but I want, I want to hang, still continue to hang out with them. So I, I remember having a vivid uh, image a, re a really story that what happened like around 12 or we're at my aunt's house you know everyone's at work it's just all the kids there and I remember I think we popped a bottle of like Casadoras something horrible uh some terrible tequila yeah and yeah and we're you know drinking a bunch of those kids I remember there being a couple of uh, my cousin's friends there they were there for a little bit or something and uh I wanted to show that you know, I was part of the crowd or that, you know, I, I, I fit as well. So I was a little huskier as a kid and being, having that extra weight, I, I can obviously drink more than the other skinny kids that I was around. And so I kind of was like, Oh, you know, I'm, I can one up you in this, in this area. And I remember that day when we, we did drink that tequila. I just remember my aunt coming home late at night, uh, like about nine or, eight o'clock at night, uh, back from work. And as soon as she sees me, she's like, all of us, she's like, you, what have you guys been doing? You know, we're full space, we're you know, drunk. And I just vomit all over the carpet floor. <laughs> oh man. And, yeah. And yeah. And I'm, I'm vomiting and, you know, she's yelling at me. My parents, you know, eventually come and pick me up later on that, that night. And when they get off work and, you know, it's not to explain myself, vomiting and, 
just like, oh, you know, we, we were just we we're just drinking. That was like the excuse that was kind of used for my parents. It was just us there being there. I didn't say anything about, you know, my cousin's friend being there or, or whatever. And I, 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 I'm telling them, yeah, like I, I drink too much. They're yelling at me, you know, of course, they ground me, uh, you know, no video games or anything for like a week to, it wasn't that long. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, obviously uh, the, the, the punishment didn't finish, uh, fit the crime. The uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, obviously now looking back at it, I'm kind of like, mm, you probably should have taken away like at least my PlayStation for at least like a month, two months. Um, or, you know, if, and when you guys hide it, at least put it somewhere where I can't get it. Like, um, right. Was that the first that time you had ever drank? That was the first time that I drank, that I remember drinking that heavily. Right. The first few times that I remember drinking, of course, is holidays. My aunts or uncles or, uh, my parents or dad, you know, slip me maybe like a, a little like sip of some beer and I I didn't really mind it I actually at that like at long, younger ages when they did do that I kind of liked the taste I kind of liked the feeling it gave me so therefore I always saw at around 12 that first play heavily you know binge drinking like that I kind of remember you know my, my dad doing that and my uncle doing that like I remember seeing other people do that and they were able to hold themselves control themselves and I was thinking along the same lines like you know well I should be able to control myself too. And now there I was, you know, vomiting in the middle, like uh, eight o'clock at night, uh, right when my hand gets home, perfect timing. And it's one of those things where after that, I saw that like I could fit in this way with my cousins if I wanted to. And because after that, it was like, oh, okay, like Ruben's not afraid to drink with us. And I would say that I wasn't drinking every single time I went to my cousin's house. I would go about once a weekend, and I was maybe drinking once every, you know, two or three months. After that experience that I had with throwing up and stuff like that, having a huge headache and hangover afterwards, I still didn't make it like my, my thing where I was going to continuously do that. And I think it was just because I knew I had to go back to my parents at the end of the night. And right. I was like, crap, they're, they're going to see it. So it wasn't so much that, like, I didn't want to do it because I had my parents not been there. Then I would definitely have said, like, yeah, I would have. I would definitely have, have partied and went out with uh, my cousins. But just the fact of knowing, like, man, at the end of the day, my parents are going to come pick me up. And they're going to smell like they're going to know I smell like alcohol. My dad can smell it easily. So can my mom. She's just got like a nose for this thing. So I, I felt kind of afraid in that sense where I would, wouldn't do it. However, like every, you know, two or three months, roughly, you know, my, my cousins, my aunts, uh, someone would have a party, a, a birthday, holiday, whatever, and they'd be celebrating. And it was kind of an excuse since everyone else is drinking, I could then sneak in, you know, sneak a few beers or sneak out with my cousin and go somewhere else with his friends. And it wouldn't be so bad because, you know, everyone else is smelling the same. Like everyone's smelling right. like, like they've been drinking, like they've been drinking as well. I would, I would definitely say that like the drinking definitely progressed once I got in high school, right around going into junior year. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So what age were you uh, convicted of your life crime? 
So I was convicted of my life crime at 23 years old. At 23 years old. So yes. this connected dot, fill in the blank in this middle area from the early teenage years to you just mentioned going into high school and you're drinking, progressing. And whatever you think that was contributing to your drinking and your progression, talk about that up until the point of your crime, life crime. Okay. So 13 years old, you know, the high, uh, junior high ends. My cousins, you know, they, they want to hang out a lot more with their friends from high school instead. And I started feeling that same kind of loneliness again that I felt before. I definitely felt uh, really badly before at the beginning of high school. Of course, I have some of my middle school friends. They come over to high school with me as well. But the difference in what we wanted to do started sort of changing. They kind of like want to hang out together more, drink, uh, skateboard and stuff like that. Whereas I still couldn't go out. My parents wouldn't let me ever go out much. There was a lot of strict rules on that. So I started feeling that seclusion, uh, that not being included again, because now where I used to go to feel included with my cousins, like they're, they're kind of doing their own thing with their own friends, going out with their own friends. And my friends, there's this slow disconnect that's slowly happening because what we want to do after school is not the same. And, or even during school. That's around 13, 14 years old, freshman year of high school. And I, I get, you know, I find another group of friends similar to me. They we like playing video games. I would say definitely we're the squares. And I enter high school part of a, a math, science, social study, like little academy. So there was about 500 of us at that high school. And about 70 of us were chosen to be in advanced classes, you know, honor classes and stuff like that. And I was a part of that. A few of my friends that eventually like became some of my good friends, they, they were also a part of that. And so I kind of, again, not only did I feel alone, but at the same time, I did at least find someone who I could be like alone with. So I, again, I immersed myself like we would always be off online, like late playing uh, video games online. And uh, it was one of those things where I started being just really well in school again, started doing well, and just kind of looked at as, again, the nerd square, not going out much. And it's kind of, kind of known as that. I, I mean, I'm a goofy kid that like, was wearing glasses. I eventually got rid of those, started wearing some contacts, and my glasses were thick. Like, I'm blind as a bat. And so, of course, if you see that, and I have giant Coke bottles for, for glasses, and there's no doubt that I'm going to be made fun of at the beginning of high school for that. Back at that age, I probably would have made fun of someone that same way as well. Um, that kids could be cruel. And, yes, yes. Kids can be cruel, and... I definitely, at that age, would have been, if I had not had the Coke bottles with someone else was wearing them, I definitely would have participated and been cruel to that person as well with my friends and joined in. Some of our listeners right now are probably like, this doesn't sound like the stereotypical guy who ends up in prison. This doesn't sound like the gang member or the drug addict or, you know, this is the guy with the Coke bottles who had good grades in school 
and took a shot every once in a while with his cousins at 14 or 13, you know, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely not. I mean, I, I have like, you know, goofy hair, you're, you're wearing the glasses, you, you'd rather play, you know, counter-strike or, or stuff on, on a computer than, than rather than go out or, uh, hang out and stuff like that. And, and I guess that would be different. I, of course, going to the school that I went to, their South High School in Bakersfield, you had all of that. I could have easily gone another route. I mean, I had friends that I had in high school, I mean, in junior high that when they went into high school, they started smoking weed, they started doing drugs, started being part of a gang. And I would say being a part of that math, science, social studies little group that we had there definitely helped out. It, it cheered me for a little while from going on the wrong path. And I say it deterred me for a little while because I found a group of friends that like, okay, we have some common interests of playing video games. Like that's, that's what it was. And we still kind of had the kid mentality. And I would say right around sophomore year, I'm 15 and my couple of my friends, they're a little older than me. So they're driving now they're 16 and we're going around driving. One of my buddies, Pedro, you know, he, he has his truck and we're, we're going out in the middle of nowhere, Bakersfield, just driving around in his truck staying out late and slowly things like that start changing because now that we have a little more freedom, we're not on the watchful eyes of my parents. And it was kind of like at that, around that age, I could be like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to hang out at my buddy Lum's house, maybe even spend the night. My parents every now and again became okay with that. And for a while there we were playing, you know, we'd go over, we'd hang out there, we'd play video games or, you know, go around, drive around. And that was around 15 years old. That's that's what we did quite often. Junior comes along, and now we're all driving. Like, we're all 16, almost all driving. I'm driving as well. And now that I'm driving, it becomes a little easier for me to get around. I have some more freedom. My, my parents uh, allowed me to go and spend a night at my friend's house every now and again. And it's around this time where a couple of the friends I'm hanging out with, they want to start, you know, hanging out with girls. They want to start hanging out and party. And, of course, not we didn't do that every single time, but we're like, hey, we would party, maybe drink a little bit at the party to the point where we didn't need to go to the party anymore that we started like, hey, we're just here playing Halo all night. How about we open up a bottle of, like, Captain Morgan and start you know, drinking it and making our own party here. And that that's like where the introduction started again, where I had a decision and that a lot of my friends, I saw them as like, oh, we're all straight A students. You know, we're all part of this math, science, social study academy. We're all nerds. We're all doing pretty well for ourselves. It's obviously not cutting into our grades like we did it a few times, you know, got hung over, still went to school the next day and we were still fine. You know, we were still getting good grades. And we're like, oh, so there's obviously no problem problem there. So we start smoking cigarettes with them and we're just drinking, playing Halo video games from time to time. And I, so I had a Civic SI at that time and I was really into the whole street racing thing. A few of my friends were too. So that was kind of the thing that we started getting into at uh, around 16, like we started going around 
trying to find some street races there around in Bakersfield. At that time, you're easily able to find one. And it was just exciting because it was a different lifestyle. And it was something where, like, we could go. And at the end of the night, we can come back. And we know, like, nothing happened. Like, we, we would be okay, at least right. for the most part. Like, uh, at least for the most part. We always came back okay. We we believed we would always be okay, even though a few times cops came and, and raided the, the race and everyone's scattering, but it's like, we made it out. Like, see, we're, we're always going to make it out. You're kids. We were kids. We thought we were invincible. Were you ever arrested I, before during that time? So, uh, at that time, no, I was never arrested for, uh, for street racing. There was a lot of times when they came and raided and we, you know, I got away, we got away. And it was one of those things like, Oh, see, we're always going to get away. There was a couple other guys that like we knew that were, that we went to the street races with us, but they got caught. And we're like, oh, it's because they got slower cars or like, or they're just, they're not as smart. High. Yeah, they're not as smart or like, because they were high. Like, see, this is why we don't get high. Like, this is why we just drink. A bunch of different excuses. Like, right. So I did get into that street racing around there at 16 at uh, that age. And I'm finally, you know, gaining some, a little more acceptance around my friends. A lot more acceptance. I feel like I'm included. And it, it's feeling great around this time. I'm also talking to this uh, girl named Lindira, and she is uh, she was a phenomenal woman, and uh, she's very going. She's in the same math science social study academy as me, and she's way better grades than I am. She's 4.0 plus, smart little uh, Filipino chick, and she's so I'm, I'm friends with her, talking with her. Uh, I really considered her one of my close friends really close to friends and we would be talking every day on computer on on the phone uh to the point where my mom and dad were like god like you guys you're always on the phone you're always on the computer and i was always hanging out with her and right. she, and i love her to death at december of uh that year where i turned and uh that turned 16 that year of uh junior year she was diagnosed with uh, a rare a rare disease and uh, she was hospitalized and I I go and see her she seems to be okay and hopefully she's saying you know hopefully the doctor is lets her out soon well she, a few weeks after that she ends up going to a St. Jude Medical Center up here in Madeira and where uh, I went and visited her uh, a couple times and it just progressively got worse. Her her body started to uh, get swollen. It seemed like it, it had. They were thinking it was either some sort of cancer, cancer that for her blood, or, or doctors didn't really know exactly. She was in a coma, and at that time, I really didn't know how to cope with it at all. And the one thing that like my friends they tried to help me cope with it was like, oh, you know, well, we'll just drink some caffeine tonight or we'll just drink, you know, some Jack Daniels tonight and, you know, play some video games. Uh, just, you know, just hang out and chill and just, it'll be all right. So uh, I started attempting to drown my sorrows with uh, some everything, pretty much. Uh, where I had a friend that would like, like horrible stuff like Jim Bean and Wild Turkey, and but it, <laughs> we would drink it and whatever we get our hands on and 
be at my buddy Lum's house uh, drinking and playing video games. And that was kind of a, a lot of times that I'd do that to just escape. I felt right. the pain inside of like, man, um, this chick that I, I really, that I, you know, at that time I loved and like my heart and all my heart. And here I am, I can't do anything. Help her. I felt hopeless. Like, here's this person that one day I'm talking to them uh, and the next day they're sick. And I just felt horrible. Uh, I horribleized myself. Like, I just felt terrible. And I just kind of made it a point of, like, you know what? Like, this shows I'm not worthy to to like someone or be with someone. I kind of started telling myself things about that. That, you know, uh, this is why, like, you're just a nerd. No one's going to like you. This is why, like, it took her so long for her to even like you because you're you're not good enough. This is just like the universe's way. This is God's way of showing again that you know you're you're not good enough. Around this time, you know, I'm I'm finishing up my confirmation catechism classes there at, at St. Joseph in, in Bakersfield. You know, I was raised Catholic. We went to catechism pretty much all my life. Even there. You know, I remember talking to the catechism teacher, and I I remember vaguely, like, kind of telling him that, you know, you can't help me. No one can help me. Like, God can't help me. Like, and I, I started writing off God. I started writing off a lot of the values that I've been taught all my life. Obviously, they don't work because people still get hurt. People you love still get hurt. They still get sick. And what's the point? Would you and, say she uh, was your first love, too? Yes, I would definitely say that. So I, I remember, yeah, talking to my catechism teacher. I remember blowing him off, like, he's just getting completely mad at him. And I'm telling myself the story more and more that, you know, I'm just not good enough. Like, I'm I'm not. Like, I'm just not this good person. This is another reason why, like, me and my brothers are, like, my brother's in Cal Poly at this time. My other brother, he uh, he's still in Bakersfield, but we're not hanging out as much anymore. Like, this, this is why, like... Ruben, you're not good enough. It's just because this is why people distance themselves from you because you've just never been good enough. You've never fit the mold. You've never succeeded or, or you've never excelled at any of your life. You've done well, like you've done pretty good, but you've never shined. And I felt like at that time, you know, her being sick, like the little bit of shine that I felt in my life went away. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.